We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovix. Joining me today is Luke Groman, founder and president of FFTT, or Forest for the Trees. How are you today, Luke? Thanks for joining me. I'm doing great, Tom. How are you today? Excellent. It's great to have you back. And, you know, I always look forward to these conversations with you. And it always really forces me to kind of really step back and do even more research than I usually do to really try to keep up with your thinking on these subjects. And of course, there's a lot to get to today, but I'd like to start by speaking with you about the size of the U.S. debt at the moment and how that starts to act as a real headwind for the government and the economy. So when we see the size of the federal debt and deficits thrown around, you know, one trillion here or three trillion there, I think it's really easy to lose perspective on the size and the magnitude of this issue. So considering this, I thought a good way to kind of break it down would be by first speaking about what the size of the deficit is this year and what the next 12 months looks like for debt refinancing. So the deficit is so far on on a fiscal year basis. They just reported the fiscal first year or fiscal first quarter number. It was, I think, a $509 billion deficit in the fiscal first quarter. So if you just straight lined that, which you really can't because you're going to have some seasonality, but you're going to be, I don't know, 1.7 to $2.1 trillion is probably the right way to think about it. Uh, once you factor in some of the seasonality, that works out to, uh, I don't know, I think 7% of GDP. Uh, to me, the size of the debt is less interesting than, well, while problematic, it's less interesting than the makeup of the deficit, which is to say, if you look at the entitlement uh, current spend, which will be, I don't know, 3.2 or $3.3 trillion this year, or roughly 70 to 75% of receipts, uh, if we don't have a recession, which I don't think we will. Uh, and then the interest, uh, which on a gross basis should easily be a trillion one this year, maybe a trillion two, again, depending on if they cut rates or not, could be higher if they don't. Um, you're looking at... Uh, Entitlement pagos, which are just the interest portion of the off-balance sheet debt liabilities of the United States government, and the gross interest, those two items, your true interest expenses, how we call them, will be around 100%, maybe a little bit more than 100% of tax receipts. Mm -hmm. In plain English, that means the United States government cannot pay those out of receipts. They cannot pay their interest expense out of receipts. They have to borrow the money to pay their true interest expense. That's a debt crisis. Once you're borrowing the money to pay the interest, you're done. You're done. And so the, to me, the, the biggest variant perception as we enter 2024 is exactly how acute the problem is. People think we have time. We don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way of looking at it that we looked at is, is the um, something that was introduced to us um, uh, by somebody else. I'm trying to think. Oh, um, I apologize. <laughs> Their name is escaping me. I'll think of it in a bit. Um, 
but the point is this, the U.S. insolvency ratio, which is just gross interest divided by tax receipts. It's at nearly 25%. It's likely to be almost 30% by the end of this year um, if they don't cut rates. It's the highest since late 1984. And once you get above 30%, uh, you start to have some serious problems. So there is the the acuity of the stuff you cannot cut is far greater than is generally appreciated right now. And I think that to me is the most important way to frame because the debt, 34 trillion, 35 trillion, who knows? I mean, like, and if it's 0% same as cash debt, who cares? 5% Fed funds rate, it starts to matter a whole lot on mm-hmm. a whole lot faster. And that's, we're seeing the when, the acuity of the problem in these two metrics I talked about, true interest expense to receipts and the insolvency ratio. Mm-hmm. No, Luke, it really just seems like, unfortunately, we talk about the debt so often and it it almost again, kind of loses this focus, loses this profound nature of what we're facing here. You know, you and I have talked about the situation of fiscal dominance, which has been introduced. But you said something there that really actually surprised me. And I think you're one of the only people I've heard say that is that I thought you said that we're not going to be facing a recession this year. No, I don't think we will. And why is that? Uh, because if we have a recession, you will see a recession. Having a sustained recession for two quarters implies that Powell and Yellen stand aside as the Treasury market crashes, basically. What we saw in 3Q23, where we saw the 10-year Treasury bond fall almost 20% in a single quarter, um, we were starting to get an incipient interest uh, bond interest spike bond crisis mm-hmm. that was stopped by the Fed jawboning rates down, the Fed starting to pivot on rates, and most importantly, Yellen shifting issuance from the long end to the short end so that she could effectively tap the reverse repo uh, in the bill market as the uh, as a new version of what Powell did in 4Q19 of not QE. It's not QE because they're not buying at the long end. Uh, they're just buying bills, mm-hmm. whatever. It's a dollar liquidity injection. The dollar fell sharply in the fourth quarter. That bought them time. A recession, because of how of the policies of the last 20 years, a recession being sustained to define a recession will require uh, the treasury market to crash. And they're not going to let the treasury market crash. And that's and if and if and if we have a recession and treasury yields spike from four to six or seven, and now you get into interest rates spike, can we have a recession? Yes, that would require basically a bond market crash, a treasury market crash that defunds the United States government. It's just not going to happen, in my view. And that's why I say we're not going to have a recession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to look at it from from that perspective and consider it from there. Is that really, as you call it, the mother of all worst case scenarios for the Fed at this point? Is is what the mother of all worst case scenarios? Um, 
letting the bot letting a, a, a treasury market crash. Well, they can they can stop at any time they want. The Fed's policy choice is not hard landing or soft landing. The 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 Fed's policy choice is hard landing in the bond market or hard landing in the dollar. Mm -hmm. um, and we go back four years to the repo rate spike. Powell could have stood aside. Fine, let repo go to ten to twelve, eight to ten, wherever it was. Let the government issue its next round of uh, uh, next quarter's worth of treasuries at ten. 10% plus, right? Because the repo was, was where there's a lot of funding taking place of those auctions. Mm -hmm. Let mortgages in the United States or price at 12. Let the entire banking system deal with commercial real estate having to refi at 12 to 14. He could have done that. There was zero chance he was going to let that happen. Okay. That was, you know, this is almost biblical in some way, right? This is like Peter denying Jesus like three times, right? Okay. Treasury market blows up once. Powell shows up in 48 hours. 48 hours. Okay, let's go to March 2020. March 2020. We do get a deflationary impulse, massive deflationary impulse. And then all of a sudden, in the depths of the COVID crisis, the system's about to implode. What happens to the treasury market? It starts imploding. Yields start going up in the worst deflationary crisis since the Great Depression. Strike two. What's Powell do? 24, 36 hours. Maybe it was 72 hours this time. 600 billion dollars a week in QE, mm -hmm. right? Two. We go uh, on the flip side of you know this the 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 liquidity bonanza of 2020, 2021. We go to 2022. I'm going to tighten. Okay, they tighten. And what happens in September 2022? You get the Treasury market dysfunctioning. You start getting these massive tails. In Treasury bond auctions, you get the UK gilt market blows up, and then in 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 October of that year, Yellen meets with all of the US's foreign creditors and allies in Washington at the IMF meeting. Bloomberg says the number one topic of discussion is the dollar. The creditors are saying you have to get the dollar down, and lo and behold, Yellen completely offsets all of Powell's QT. More than 100% offsets QT with the rundown of the TGA, the Treasury General Account. Yellen injects liquidity this time. So it's not Powell, but it's one of the two of them acting to save the Treasury market. Because again, foreign creditors, the conversation probably went something like this. You got to get the dollar down. Yellen, hey, remember what Tre Treasury Secretary Connolly said? The dollar is our currency, but it's your problem. And that's fine. When Connolly said it, the United States net international investment position was positive 10% of GDP. We had 10% of our GDP more in foreigners than they had of ours. Now it's negative 65%. So they, these, these people that say, oh, well, Powell can be Volcker. Yellen can be Connolly. Well, maybe she did. And you know what they said? They said, okay, great. We have 7.6 trillion in treasuries we own. We're going to sell them by the end of the year. Have fun trying to, have fun trying to refinance your debt. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, I'll run it down. Okay. So that's strike three. Now we've had Powell twice, Yellen once, immediately reacting to treasury market dysfunction. Yellen took a little longer. It was maybe three, four weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but again, three, four weeks is not nearly enough time if you're a, a size player, if you're an institutional player to completely reorder your portfolio um for both the deflationary and then the the reflationary up right so now markets rip from october november december january we go to march 2023 
Treasury, you know, banking has a problem. It's not a banking problem. It's a treasury problem. They're upside down on their treasuries, and now they need to sell them. Well, if they sell them, what happens? Treasury yields up in that crisis. What does Powell do? Powell creates a liquidity facility whereby the banks can take treasuries that are worth 75 cents on the dollar and hand them over the Fed and get 100, you know, get 100 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. Technically not QE. Fourth time, the treasury market is dysfunctioned. Um, before China collapsed, before, you know, stocks really, you know, the, the treasury market is acting like a risk off asset. And then when the liquidity comes in, at treasuries rally. Then we go to 3Q23, same thing. Yellen comes out and says, I'm going to issue more. The deficit's higher than we thought. Treasury mark. And no, oh, by the way, 3Q23 inflation prints were already trending way down. They were sequentially weaker every single month. They were weaker every single month for several months before. And the 10-year treasury yield's going up. That's not how the 10-year treasury yield, I've been doing this 29 years in research business, investment research. I've never seen a trade like that till 2022 mm-hmm. uh, that I can recall, not for any sustained period of time. So again, 3Q23, treasury market dysfunction. As soon as it hits a threshold, you have seven Fed speakers in nine days say the bond market's doing our job for us, I, aka jawboning the dollar down. Uh, you have Yellen come out and completely, you know, like I said before, uh, shift issuance to the front end so she can address... Uh, her issuance issues with the reverse repo, uh, and it's basically not QE that was not called not QE. Um, and then Powell stopped. He came out and surprised everybody. By, and then we get the Fed being surprisingly uh, dovish in December. Very surprising. So we now have time after time after time. We, we have four to five instances where we see U.S. policymakers move heaven and earth regardless of what inflation is, regardless of where unemployment is, anything that threatens the treasury market, they jump immediately or virtually immediately in in sort of practical terms. And so that to me, we don't need to guess now. We just need to focus on, okay, what are the liquidity constraints in the treasury market? Because as soon as something threatens that, Mm -hmm. they're going to jump. Um, And that's fiscal dominance at the end of the day. The treasury market is dictating to the Fed and the Treasury. Uh, and I don't think that's, it's still not an appreciated dynamic. It's definitely not consensus, particularly when we tie it back into what I let off with, which is true interest expense as a percent of receipts at 100%. Treasury dysfunction is going to, like, it ain't going to be in September. It's going to be in the first half of this year, mm-hmm. especially once reverse repo balances get down near zero. Uh, they're going to have to do something. And and so to me, that's the big surprise, the variant perception this year is like you can take the dual mandate that we've all been investing based on, the Fed's dual mandate of employment and, and inflation, and you can crimple them up and you can throw them in the trash because the Fed's shadow third mandate that has been in force since at least the late, uh, late 2019, if not then 2Q20, which is treasury market functioning, is driving the whole boat. Mm-hmm. And like that's that's where we are. And I think as investors, as consensus realize this, I think they're starting to on the margin, but it hasn't been priced in assets at all. If this was fully priced in, you wouldn't have six almost six trillion dollars sitting in money market accounts. Mm-hmm. So Luke, it's interesting that you explain it that way. And really that you explain it that 
it's not necessarily just about the Fed and Powell. You know, it's it's a lot about Yellen as well, because this is something that I think doesn't get brought up a lot. So do you see them working synergistically or is it are they kind of working against each other at times? I think they were working against each other from March of 2022, maybe, maybe, maybe June of 2022 mm-hmm. until like November, December. I think some somebody put some data in front of Powell and it scared the hell out of him. And it should, because like, you know, he, he he was running under this assumption and we wrote it, you know, we, we wrote to our clients in summer of 2022. It was coming out that it was reported that Powell was saying that there's no way I'm going to be the next Arthur Burns. Yeah. I want my legacy to be Volcker. And we wrote to our clients. I said, his choice isn't Volcker or Burns. His choice is Burns or Ben Strong, who overtighted the United States and the world into the great depression. And like, that's, that's the mistake he's making. And hey, good luck. And and literally three months later, you know, Yellen, you know, the treasury market tanked and guilt market crashed and Yellen had to come up with the TGA liquidity to sort of keep things from really going, going pear shape. But something, you know, somebody had to come, what we used to call in the trading desk, a, a, a come to Jesus with, with Powell, right? Where like, I, you know, and I'm looking at the fiscal math, and I pretty good sense of what it is, which is just like, listen, stop, stop. Like you're, you're, you're done. This is where we are. These policy choices were made. When you do dumb stuff for 25 years with borrowed money, sooner or later you pay the piper and this someday is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that you also, that you phrase it as, you know, the Fed presents this perception of having this dual mandate, yet you go back and you look at their actions instead. And as you say, it's all about saving the treasury market. So how how do you think that ends up affecting the average investor? You know, you said that if people understood that, they wouldn't be in money market funds. So can you explain to people why that would be? Oh, be, for because if I'm right, and I think I am, I'm very high conviction. I have not as high conviction on the path, but I have extremely high conviction that on 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 the direction mm-hmm. um, and and the ultimate outcome. You can't own long term debt. Long term debt's going to get inflated away, and it'll probably continue to happen in waves. Because by the way, that has begun happening. It, ha- it began happening several years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're going to have a situation where the hundred, I don't know, I think it's a hundred fifty trillion dollar global bond market, it is going to wake up and go, oh God, we're the suckers at the card table. Because the United States government is not going to shut itself down to keep paying me interest in on in, in positive on positive real rates. Mm-hmm. I'm the sucker at the card table. I need to own something that's going to preserve purchasing power. And the $150 trillion bond market is going to try to squeeze into the $60 trillion global equity market. So when people say equities are really expensive, yeah, but not, they're they're cheap on a relative basis. 
if you think the U.S. government is not going to allow itself to be defunded by the bond market, which I think is a is very, very, nothing's guaranteed, but boy, it's pretty good bet that the U.S. government is not going to allow itself to be defunded by the bond market, in which case, okay, now you have $150 trillion in bonds going, uh-oh, I need something that better preserves my purchasing power. Equities is the easiest and most liquid. Gold, Bitcoin, commodities, real estate, like it's it's all dwarfed by the bond market. And the more the bond market figures this out, the more upward pressure you're going to get on rates and the faster this will happen. And so there's this view that, oh, well, there's, it'll be linear. No, it's not. It's This stuff's never linear. It's going to be like little by little and then all at once. Tipping point. And, and, and the all at once will just be, you know, the, you'll be able to see it because the Fed's balance sheet will go $7 trillion. Oh, the, it's nowhere we're done with QT, which, oh, by the way, they're already talking about winding and slowing QT so that we don't have to stop it all at once. Lori Logan said that last week. And it'll be 7 trillion, 7, you know, 6.9 trillion, 6.9 trillion, 6.95, 7.2, 10, 15, 30 trillion. And, and some version, I don't know if those are the right numbers, but that I want to I want to be a bit hyperbolic. When the bond market sort of figures out it's the sucker at the card table, given the fist, it's not going to figure it out linearly. It's going to figure out a little and it's going to be like, Oh, God. And increasingly where we are on the fiscal side, I think a quorum of the bond market might be starting to figure that out. I think that's part of the message of gold rising in positive real rates, completely separating from U.S. dollar real rates uh, in a way we've I've never seen in my career. Mm-hmm. Certainly hasn't happened in at least 20 years. Um, and I think that's I think gold's given you the warning in 2022 when gold separated from 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 U.S. real rates in late 2022. Gold was just saying they're done. Mm-hmm. And that's just the very little start of the of the of the bond market going. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a little gold. I'm gonna take some of my bond, my long term bond allocation, buy some gold. Same mm-hmm. thing with Bitcoin. Like, why is Bitcoin at forty one thousand, forty two thousand? With you know, yes, ETF, yeah, yeah. But it's 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 the last functioning smoke alarm of what I just described. It's just t- like it's just forward looking and going. All right. A bet on bonds is a bet that the United States government is going to slash entitlements and defense in an, in, in an election year and cede Eurasia to Russia and China when it, you know, instead of printing the money. And I think it's a foolish bet mm-hmm. over time. I mean, in any short-term period could happen, sure. On a sustained basis, it's a foolish bet, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, Luke, I want to go back to something you were saying about Powell really really turning a lot more dovish in the later part of November than he was for, let's say, the last year here. Do you think he was really reacting to something acute? Or is it possible that, you know, this was kind of building up and he was reacting or he was finally, you know, kind of acknowledging something that was put in front of him before that? Gun to my head. I I don't know. Gun to my head. I don't think he was necessarily reacting to anything acute. I think there's a distinct possibility that what he was reacting to was that Biden and she agreed to weaken the dollar in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And Yellen sat down and said, listen, our president just agreed with China to weaken the dollar. Here were the terms of it. You're done. Get out of the way. And that to me is, I think, 
I, I don't know why he got so hawk or so dovish so fast. Mm-hmm. That to me is is actually the most likely scenario versus I mean you can see the interest stuff happening, but you know, he's he'd been playing tough guy on this stuff before. I think that might be what changed. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about what happened, you know, as part of that meeting between Xi and Biden and what you think the outcomes are as you wrote kind of mid-December as well, actually. I think that coming into that meeting, the strong dollar was a problem for both China and the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think some sort of deal may have been agreed to where the dollar is weakened and China gets the ability to buy oil from the Saudis in Yuan. Recall that shortly after that meeting, uh, less than a week after the the Biden-Xi meeting, uh, it was announced that the China and Saudi had agreed to a yuan swap, uh, yuan currency swap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're Saudi, why do you need a yuan currency swap, number one? Number two, where are you going to earn the yuan to pay back any yuan borrowed under the yuan swap? Well, guess what? Probably selling oil. Um I think that was, I, you know, again, I don't know anything. I'm not, I'm not an insider on the political side. I'm watching what the dollar did. I'm watching what the yuan did, uh, which was strengthened meaningfully against the dollar after that meeting. Uh, uh, the dollar weakened after that meeting. The U.S. needed a weaker dollar because a weaker dollar, all else equal, makes the treasury market function, uh, stop dysfunctioning. Um, Dollar went from 107 to 101, 102, and look, Treasury market found its feet. It was accompanied by a reduction in, in duration issuance, pushed into bills like we just talked about. But weaker dollar, all else equal, takes the pressure off of foreign selling and actually can maybe, if it gets weak enough, induce some foreign buying of Treasuries. Uh, so that's good for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, a weaker dollar helps China, right? That helps stabilize the yuan. They want that as well. Uh, the problem for China on that is that if oil is only priced in dollars and the dollar weakens, uh, the oil their oil bill goes up. Their dollar outflows just simply change from debt to to oil dollar outflows. So the quid pro quo needs to be that's fine. We'll help you weaken the dollar, but we need to be able to address this structural weakness, which is if oil is only priced in dollars and the dollar goes down, which helps us on one hand, it's going to hurt us on the oil import side, and that's unacceptable to us. And that's why I think the yuan swap with the Saudis five days after she uh, and Biden met in San Francisco was was so interesting and so important. And I think some of the, I think some of of just what happened around that meeting was interesting, right? The way they cleaned things up uh, for she, yeah, literally, literally, like that's. That was there was I think there was informational value there, right? Like, like you, you know, it reminded me of the scene in The Fugitive, right? Like, uh, if you've seen the American movie The Fugitive in in '93, you know, they are in Chicago in in, in for for St. Patrick's Day, and they dye the river green, you know, the Chicago River green, and the one detective was like, they dye it green for St. Patrick's Day. Why can't they dye it blue for the rest of the year? <laughs> and and it's like. If they can clean it up for she, why don't they do that the rest of the year too? I just, you know, it's one of these things where I just think 
to me, that suggested it was an important meeting. It was a very important meeting. Something important was going to happen there. Um, and then I look at how markets traded after dollar down, you want up, you want swaps between the Saudis. It's sort of, you know, it's to be determined, but so far, nothing's happened that I, where I look and go, oh, well, that proves that they couldn't have talked about weakening the dollar at that meeting. I've not seen that yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you say, those those puzzle pieces tend to kind of fit in those places, I think. Um, yeah, and Powell's reaction after, to like, is a perfect example. Like, all of a sudden, he stops fighting yelling. You know, at the end of the day, he's got to report to the president. So, Luke, what do you think are the red lines for the U.S. not to allow to happen as a part of that relationship between the Saudis and China? I think the red line for the U.S. is that Saudi, if I'm right, and again, this is speculation, informed speculation, but speculation. If I'm right, the red line for the U.S. is that the the uh, Saudis would not be allowed to recycle uh, yuan surpluses into the Chinese government bond market because that would de facto amount to the Chinese financing, or excuse me, the Saudis financing the Chinese military. And I think the United States would see that as unacceptable. And so I would think it would have to be recycled into Chinese goods, which is just global trade, which is fine. And I think any net surpluses can be recycled in art, and I think probably are being recycled on the margin, maybe, uh, but certainly elsewhere in the world into gold. Uh, and I think that's fine. I just think it's the and it's it's on some level semantical flows or flows. But I just think that if I'm the U.S., we say, look, this is fine. It's in nobody's interest for the dollar to go to the moon because, yes, it's going to hurt China. But now, like I just described, the Treasury market keeps breaking before China, which is something sort of the strong dollar crowd, uh, you know, just sort of you know, they do the dumb and dumber, you know, la, 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 la. they don't want to hear it because and I'm not saying they are dumber and dumber. They're not. They're brilliant. But they don't want to acknowledge it because there's no answer for it. Why does the Treasury market keep breaking before China? Well, China's commercial real estate. Well, yeah, there's a U.S. commercial real estate, too. Mm-hmm. So what? Why does it keep breaking before China breaks? This was this has never happened this way before. Well, there's no answer. It's it's an inconvenient reality. And so it's in nobody's interest for the dollar to super spike. Um, it's not in the U.S. interest. It's not in China's interest. And at the same time, it's not in anybody's interest for the dollar to crash and certainly not in, with oil, right? If oil is only priced in dollars, a dollar crash hurts China probably way more than the U.S., maybe, especially with our oil position, I would say it probably does, quite frankly, mm-hmm. uh, unless China can buy its oil. And its other commodities outside the dollar. So I, I think there is there was a there was a, a a Nash equilibrium there that is able to be had. But that to me is the red line. Is it just Saudi Saudi can't finance Chinese government bonds, and and by you know by 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 extension their their military. Mm-hmm. So Luke, to tie all of this together, you make the point that every time the yield on the ten-year Treasury rose into falling inflation and tightening financial conditions that forces the U.S. dollar liquidity actions to occur faster every time that happens. So is this behavior more typical of emerging market sovereign debt facing a financial crisis? Kind of, as you said, it's almost trading like a risk-on instrument now. Yeah, and this is a sign of fiscal dominance, ultimately, in my view. Uh, 
you go back 10 years plus, U.S. financial conditions tighten. The yield on the 10-year treasury, which is a really sort of the real economy policy rate of this country through mortgages in particular, the yield on the 10-year treasury goes down. U.S. financial conditions tighten, 10-year treasury yields go down. U.S. financial conditions loosen, 10-year treasury yield goes up. This is how it worked for at least the last 10 to 15 years, and it's a practical matter a lot longer than that. Until roughly mid-2022. Then all of a sudden, financial conditions tighten, 10-year treasury yield goes up. <laughs> financial conditions loosen, 10-year treasury yield goes down. And we saw this replay multiple times through 2023. Uh, and here it's continued into 2024. Uh, and that is how emerging market sovereign debt with a with a debt problem trades. When financial conditions tighten, yields go up uh, and vice versa. And so it's really, really important macro rule change uh, that happened, right? Yeah, George Soros famously said, I don't, I don't play the rule, I don't play the game by any particular set of rules. I watch for when the rules change. Mm -hmm. Rules of the game changed in 2022. And a lot of people are still trading as if that's not true. Um, you know, hey, let's raise rates and squeeze, you know, squeeze the dollar higher, raise rates will force people to buy treasuries and finance our deficits. You tried that. You tried that in, in, in 2022 and 2023, and the deficit doubled. It doubled from one trillion to two trillion. And in September of 2023, you had all these Washington economists going, huh, why the deficit double? That's really, really surprising with full employment. Their models were wrong. That's why. Because deficit, you know, you take down tax receipts from from stock prices not rising by a certain percent every year through the link to stock options and, and incentive comp, and you double interest. Like like the rules are different with that the GDP at one hundred twenty percent. The rules are different when you're running a seven percent of GDP deficit with unemployment at three and a half. Mm -hmm. The rules are different, and that's ultimately when you see. Uh, when you see the 10-year treasury yield rise when financial conditions tighten and loosen and, and fall when they loosen, it's fiscal dominance. That's And it all goes back to the first point I made, which is true interest expenses right around 100% of receipts. You're done. You're having to print the interest. You know, If, if we see a further drop in receipts, which we will, uh, maybe modestly, um, in, if, if you keep interest uh, rates this high or raise them further, uh, you're going to be well over 100% of receipts in your true interest expense. And now you're having to print the money just to pay the true interest. You're done. That's a fiscal crisis. Mm -hmm. You're in fiscal dominance. Uh, you're done. And, and that's when you look at it through that lens, it makes perfect sense why 10-year treasury yields go up when financial conditions tighten and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But they're trading like risk-on assets, not safe haven assets anymore. And it's so important to understand it's not fully discounted. It's not even close to full, excuse me, not even close to fully discounted yet in markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that I that I wanted to go make sure that we really hit on today. You know, going through some of your recent writing for today as well, I came across something that I found interesting. And that being that the statement that financial conditions loosened in November by the most in a single month in 40 years. So how is that how is that being measured, Luke? Um, that's a, uh, that was a, I think it was Bloomberg financial conditions and, and, you know, that's some blend proprietary blend of what the yield curve did, what, um, yields did, what stocks did, 
Um, you know, I don't know if there's measuring other forms of liquidity somehow, but it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's easing financial conditions based on those type of metrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not just this idea that really it's, it's interest rates that matter. It's, it's, let's say lending all kinds of pieces as you put it, right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, considering this position as well of debt to GDP, Luke, how useful of a metric is GDP to you? Do you think that it represents an accurate picture of health of the economy at this time? Under certain circumstances, yes. The closer you get to a wartime economy, no. Um, in sort of the last 30 years, GDP generated by Americans selling houses back and forth to one another at ever higher prices, like it's fine, whatever. Uh, the closer you get to a wartime economy, particularly of great against great powers, uh, like Russia, like China, it becomes less and less meaningful because ultimately, a dollar of GDP from selling houses back and forth to each other at ever higher prices is a lot less valuable in wartime than a dollar of GDP making shells that you can lob at the other guy, making weapons you can lob at the other guy, making semiconductors you can lob at the other guy. And this seems, this is <laughs> when we did our conversation in March of 2022, where I said to you that I thought Russia had a lot more leverage than people thought. And that was, you know, I was called all kinds of funny things on Twitter. Yeah, Russia lover, America hater, blah, 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 blah. Well, here we are two years later, and The Economist is now like, is Putin winning on the cover of the magazine? Really? Interesting. Is he winning? Mm-hmm. A dollar of oil production of GDP is worth a lot more in wartime than a dollar of GDP generated from flipping houses back and forth or flipping credit default swaps back and forth, you know, betting on whether pets.com is going to go bankrupt or not or whatever it is, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and that's why I answered it that way. So, you know, is GDP relevant? Yeah. Um, You know, you can have some philosophical discussions around, you know, that, et cetera. But I think that for our purposes here, if we look at it as agnostically as possible, the closer you get to a wartime economy, a wartime situation, the less meaningful it gets and the more it comes down to industrial production and heavy industrial production, mm-hmm. um, those components of GDP. Yeah, I think it's interesting to really separate it apart like that, to think about the actual productive capacity of the economy and not have this semantic debate about what portion inflation made up of it or of the growth, right? Just because we got higher prices doesn't mean that GDP actually grew, even though it can reflect that. But I always find this so interesting to really get into the minutia of what this stuff means. And as you put it, kind of backing out and understanding producing oil, producing energy is a lot, is a hell of a lot more valuable than selling the same house back and forth three times for incrementally higher costs. That's right. And th- and that's that's lost on a lot of I think sort of classical neoliberal economists and and you know I hope it stays lost on them because that means we haven't gone to war. 
Um, that's good. You know, they they are going to be. You know, we go to a wartime. You can take anything those economists say and throw it in the trash because mm-hmm. everything they say is going to be useless. So, Luke, do you think that we have really transitioned from a time of trying to make money to trying to really preserve wealth, as you touched on earlier? Uh, yeah, I think we're in a, if you take a big enough step back, I mean, there's always opportunities to make money, but I think if you take a step back and take a look at where we are in this sort of long cycle, mm-hmm. uh, Kirill Sokolov is one of the wisest people I know, and he has been for some time saying we've gone from a, a season of wealth accumulation to a season of wealth distribution. And I think he's right. You know, away from sort of the short-term wiggles. I think he's right. And there's a number of factors pointing to that, supporting that, um, be they global geopolitics, be they uh, the global commodity situation, be they um, the domestic political situation, be they where we are in the entitlement picture and Western social democracies and the demographics around that. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I think we're in a season of of in the long cycle of return of capital is at least as important as return on capital mm-hmm. for a good chunk of your portfolio. And critically, it I don't have to have this conversation with with my friends and clients in emerging markets because they understand this intuitively. They've lived through this, but. Mm-hmm. In places like America, it is still considered blasphemous in many circles to talk about return on cap, return of capital, in real terms. Uh, you know, you're going to get every dime you're owed, in my opinion, on your Treasury bond portfolio. Uh, the reality is, you've lost 30 percent off the peak nominally. In terms of just mark to market, now you're going to get paid. They're not. They're going to give you your your coupon back. But then you've also lost a ton of purchasing power um, relative to basically a lot of what else you could have put that money. Um, and you can look at S and P over TLT, oof. Gold over TLT, oof. Bitcoin over TLT, oof. And I think it's only going to get worse. It has to get worse because again. If it doesn't get worse, that implies that we've, you know, we've we've basically shut down entitlements and we've shut down defense so that we can pay TLT, you know, U.S. Treasury holders a real positive rate, a positive real rate. You know, maybe that can happen for very brief stretches. But look, real rates went to positive two in July. And like instantly, the Treasury market 10-year treasuries sold down 20% in mm-hmm. under a quarter. So that, that gives you a sense. Can it happen? Sure. Two months, but it ain't going to last long. Are you going to a debt? You know, 120% debt to GDP, positive real rates is mathematically certain to trigger a debt spiral when you have deficit of 7% of GDP and when you have a net international investment position of negative 65% of GDP. Mm-hmm. And foreigners have borrowed in your currency, right? They're short your currency. They own $55 trillion gross, $18 trillion net of your assets. That's what that net international investment is. They are going to sell what they can until their hands bleed to get dollars to service their dollar debt. Anytime real rates get positive and real rates get positive, 
you, you just you got to get that the GDP down before you try to be cute and 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 send real rates positive. And you know, we just saw that. Hopefully, the Fed doesn't need to keep seeing that. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because as long as they're committed to not letting the Treasury market crash, they'll keep coming back. Mm-hmm. And I think going back to my comment earlier about really understanding the the actual actions versus what we would like to see happen or what let's say the responsible thing would be to have happen i don't think you'll ever see entitlements get cut or defense get cut in favor of just making sure that the treasury market is serviced at a proper value of what was originally borrowed right no and and Certainly not in an election year in the United States, right? So even if we say, okay, maybe it will happen at some point, it ain't going to be 2024. Like mm-hmm. there is zero chance that it happens in 2024 legislatively. There, you know, you get a new pandemic and like the boomers are, are, are suffer most from it. Okay, well, you know, there's two ways to stop paying on entitlements. One is cutting the entitlements and one is, you know, boomers pass on. Um, that's not what I'm hoping for. I'm also, and I try to be as an object of, of as objective an analyst as I can be. And objectively, mathematically, the accounting on that is would be reducing entitlement spending. Mm-hmm. So, Luke, you know exactly in that point of being very objective, you list gold and Bitcoin as both great ways of preserving capital do you see one over the other you know fitting certain parameters that you're trying to achieve versus the other or do you see them as both you know very similar in a lot of ways i think their features are similar in a lot of ways um and then from there i think one's positioning depends in no small part on one's personal uh financial situation mm-hmm. i think it's critical you know for me i don't own long-term bonds in any real way um you know i haven't for years i consider gold my long-term bond portfolio and i consider bitcoin part of my long-term bond portfolio because at the end of the day a 30-year treasury bond is just a long duration asset that pays me an, a negative real rate over the course of the cycle. It has to, uh, with infinite issuance, right? It's it's so it's a finite face value, negative real rate, infinite issuance, finite duration. And gold and Bitcoin are just finite issuance, infinite face value, infinite duration. Mm-hmm. Uh and you know, yeah, they're not paying a coupon, but they're <laughs> they react really well to negative real rates, which treasuries have to have to to sustain the debt situation we're in. Uh, Bitcoin has way more volatility. Uh, that is a question of position sizing, in my opinion. People say, "Oh, it's so volatile, I can't own it." Well, that's just a position sizing issue. If you don't like the volatility, own a percent, own two percent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, Preston, my friend Preston Pish highlighted recently the study that showed that over the last, I don't know, ten years or something. Like, I think it was a, I think it was a two percent Bitcoin, ninety eight percent cash, like outperformed the S and P, um, handily with lower vol. 
like right. So it's a position, and maybe it was five and ninety-five percent. I don't remember the exact terms, but the the directionally, that was the point. And so like, that really crystallizes this. Sometimes you're oh, Bitcoin is too volatile. But, oh, oh, that's a position sizing thing. Make it two percent, make it five percent, and then put it away. And then the bigger chunk in gold. Gold actually has lower downside volatility for the first time in forty-five years than thirty-year Treasury bonds. Why? Why are you why are you owning like like if volatility is an issue, why you would zero percent and still all own all those treasury bonds? Mm-hmm. And I think you know, I think uh inconsistencies like that will be resolved over time with price and, and movements, etc. So for me, I think they do a lot of the same things. I think Bitcoin is way more volatile, and that has to be something you have to consider for most investors. I think that's a position sizing issue. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of Bitcoin at all to really protect a lot of purchasing power. That has been demonstrated conclusively over its 15-year life. Uh, and I think gold has outperformed treasuries. You know, If you look at GLD over TLT, uh, GLD has outperformed TLT by like 3x since global oil, since, since China and Russia uh, started settling oil outside the dollar, started transacting in oil outside the dollar. And since global central banks stopped buying treasuries on net in 2014, global central banks haven't bought a single treasury on net in for their FX reserves in 10 years. In that 10 years, U.S. federal debt has gone from 17 trillion and change to 34 trillion dollars. That 17 trillion has been plugged to the banks, to the Fed, to pensions, to money market funds, to U.S. retail. You know who's been the biggest sucker at the card table in every bubble in my 29-year career? U.S. banks and U.S. retail. Who've been two of the biggest buyers of Treasuries over the last five years? U.S. banks, U.S. retail. The bu- the, the bubbles in Treasuries. And if the bubbles in treasuries, it bubbles in the dollar. Mm-hmm. If the bubbles in the dollar, it bubbles in fiat currencies. And if the bubbles in fiat currencies, you need to have some exposure to gold. And you need to have some exposure to Bitcoin. And not a lot of people have the appropriate levels of exposure if they have any at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, again, to step back and to consider it from that perspective of you know, where that bubble might be and then what the appropriate steps would be to counteract that. Luke, you know, you and I have spoken at length before about energy and especially oil. So if we're considering that the U.S. doesn't go into recession this year, and assuming you're right about that, what does that look like for the rest of the world? And downstream of that, what does that mean for oil demand this year? I think oil demand will positively surprise this year and next year and the year after and the year after. Um, I think we're in very early days of, I shouldn't take that too many years after, but I think for this year and the next several years, we'll say. Mm -hmm. One of the big revelations of 2022 and three is if you look at these alternative energy stocks companies, and in particular, wind, solar, EV, and it jumps off the page, they make sense at 0%. They might make sense at 2%. They don't make sense for at positive real rates. They don't. You can't make the math work. Mm-hmm. Not without some sort of gigantic government subsidy. Um, 
And if that's the case, then the oil and fossil fuel demand estimates for this year, next year, the out year, the out year of that, they're too low because they're all built on some really aggressive EV adoption rate that isn't going to happen. Uh, last week, Hertz came out, right? I think Hertz is, if not the, then one of the biggest rental car companies in the U.S. And they said, you know, I wrote last week, I said they they came out and said what every car-loving American and flyover country has known for years. The operating costs are enormous on these things. They, they're selling 20,000 EVs. And they're taking a $245 million charge, a write-down to equity, to write off the depreciation hit from these cars. And they're switching to gasoline. You know, um, I am a fan of the environment. I'm not bashing the environment. I'm a realist. You know, I will move to a EV powered car when the United States military moves to EV powered tanks and when they move to EV powered trucks and EV powered Hummers. And the reality is none of them do that. Why? Because when they really need it, it ain't there. And the operating costs are enormous. And, you know, also because the EV would turn them into bombs in and of their own right. But that's a separate discussion. Um, you know, lithium is quite explosive, as it turns out. Um so I, I think fossil fuel demand is going to continue to rise, number one, for that. Number two, we are clearly seeing the global oil market be de-dollarized. Wall Street Journal wrote at the end of December, 20% of global oil volumes last year traded outside the dollar. I've been talking about this ad nauseum for years. If you put a gun to my head, I would have said, hmm. Eight, maybe 10% of global oil volumes trading outside the dollar. 20 was a surprise to me. Global de-dollarization of the oil or de-dollarization of the global oil market is happening faster than expected. What are the implications of that? There's a lot of implications for that, both for treasury demand. You don't need to hold dollars if you can buy oil in your own currency if you're China. But for the oil market, The United States uses so much oil in no small part because we could always print dollars for oil. And we were the only country who did it. Meanwhile, other nations who can't actually have to earn the dollars through trade. And that's a natural curtailing of their oil demand. China right now, uh, as of the end of 2021, so it's probably a little higher than this, but at the end of 2021, China's per capita oil usage was one fifth the United States. As you gain the ability to print your domestic currency for oil, you use more. Your per capita consumption rises. China's per capita consumption goes from one-fifth to one-fourth, one-third. The amount of oil demand is enormous. India is at one-fifteenth. India's got a billion people, too. Mm-hmm. If that starts to rise, wow. Like, like That, to me, is the sort of the leverage to oil demand that is not factored into virtually any future oil consumption models I see. And so the de- the accelerated de-dollarization of the global oil market, which is double what I thought it was, and I'm above most people, um, I would think, in terms of how far that process has gone, the de-dollarization of the global oil market will drive per capita oil demand up in all these places. Now, who's going to take their currency? Everyone will take their currency. Are they going to buy their bonds? No, they're going to put in gold. And so now you're going to have the oil market bidding for gold. The gold to oil ratio has been rising. It likely keeps rising. 
gold has separated from real rates. That's another implication, I think, really important one of of the de-dollarization of global oil markets. But uh, to answer your question, I think oil demand is going to positively surprise this year, next year. What would cause it to negatively surprise? Simple. All Powell needs to do is stand back the next time the Treasury market throws up on itself and just go and have Yellen go, you know what? Let's bring, we got 700 bases or whatever we have around the world in 125 countries. We're closing 60% of them. We're bringing the boys home next month. Happy 4th of July, everybody. And boomers, I know it's only three months before the election, but your entitlements are going to get cut 30 to 40% starting next month permanently. Have a good day. Vote for Joe Biden. Come on. So I think you're going to, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's an interesting setup. Absolutely. And of course, again, there's no way we see any of those things happening. Um, no, no, not at all. In my view, it's a 0% chance. Mm-hmm. Luke, how do you see, let's say, the peak oil indications fitting into this demand picture as well? And does that mean, you know, just higher costs for everything over the longer term? I think, I mean, you're always going to have efficiencies break out. And there are, there, there is the potential sort of productivity miracles with some of these uh you know you know man is very innovative and so he'll be innovative over time that's why i said i don't want to take the out year demand side too too far there sure there there are you know there could be technologies out that are absolutely revolutionary in terms of propulsion etc and maybe maybe that changes things i don't see anything there now but you know whatever i'm not i don't have top secret clearance on on anything so maybe they exist (laughs) and we just don't know it yet Mm -hmm. um the we're not running out of oil it's just the cheapest stuff is declining basically so it's a peak cheap oil problem i still think that's an issue and again it's not really an issue but yeah it just means it means two things number one you're going to have a persistent energy inflation and even that's not a problem that that by the way that the incentivizes you to shift to EVs. Look, the EV discussion for me would be very different. I would not be nearly so bold and strong to say, I'll switch EV when the US military switches to EV. Look, if gasoline was 20 bucks a gallon, I'd be like, well, I'll switch a little sooner. Mm-hmm. The problem isn't the availability of the oil. The, the problem is the price of the availability of the oil needed to keep the supply of oil growing relative to what that price will do to the bond market. Six, seven dollar gasoline, bond market's going to throw up all over itself. And then you get into this debt. It's not so much the inflation from the oil. It's the fact that we have so much debt outstanding, sovereign debt in particular, treasuries in particular within that, that just don't function. The market breaks if oil gets too high because foreigners are going to go, we've got all, we got 7.6 trillion in treasuries and we need oil. Okay. What should we do? Should we hold our treasuries to finance the US government? Or should we buy oil for our people? And oh, by the way, if we don't buy oil for our people, they're going to vote us out in the nice places, and they're going to do a lot worse in the not so nice places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not even a choice. And we've seen this repeatedly since early 2022 when Russia invaded uh, uh, Ukraine. So oil gets too high, treasuries get sold, treasury market dysfunction, Powell has to step back in, or Yellen has to step back in, but more dollar liquidity has got to come one way or another to make the treasury market function again. Wash, rinse, repeat. And, and so... Um, for me, energy secularly, yeah, it probably goes higher as a percent of GDP over time. 
it's not a problem that incense appropriate behaviors in terms of or desired behaviors. I, who am I to judge appropriate or not? <laughs> desired behaviors uh, in terms of green energy, alternative energy, etc. You need expensive fossil fuels to do that. But the problem is, is it blows up the bond market <laughs> and the current structure of the entire monetary system. And again, that's not a problem. If it's only a problem if you have all your net worth and treasuries, long-term treasuries. <laughs> it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a, it, these are puts and takes that have to be worked out. Ultimately, they'll be worked out with printing and I think yield curve control, et cetera, whatever. But maybe we get an energy productivity miracle. I always, I almost always, yeah, you know, caveat with, we get an energy productivity miracle. You, that's, that's how you cut that Gordian knot. That's how you stop that wash and repeat, you know. Running down the US SPR was a productivity miracle of sorts. It also has a finite shelf life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, as kind of an anecdote to, let's say, the reality of electric cars. I was recently in Phoenix and they have a service down there that has autonomous EV Jaguar SUVs. And somebody was telling us the other day that apparently at the facility that was built to house and recharge these cars, they don't have enough power to be able to charge all the cars. So it's <laughs> it's just incredible to me to, you know, let's say have ordered whatever the number is, let's say 200 of these cars, set up a whole facility to be able to run it out of, and yet they don't have enough power to be able to charge them all. It's just so crazy. But again, it's... it just kind of goes back to the reality of what that situation entails. And just being able to flick the light switch and say, we're going all EV, there's a lot more consideration there. And there's a lot more complicated logistics that need to be implemented before that's a possibility. Oh, it's, I mean, I had a conversation with a congressperson, uh, a state congressperson in a US Western state that said, we are mandated to have our EV penetration rate at X percent by 2028 or something. Mm -hmm. And we also have mandated by 2027 or eight that we have to shut down these two or three coal plants, these coal generation plants, coal-fired electrical plants, without which we can't even come close to supplying the electricity we need to hit the EV target. Which is like, I just, I laugh and, 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 just, I mean, it's sort of par for the course. Making matters worse. Uh, now, I have a an investment in a private equity uh, company that owns uh, electrical infrastructure metal benders, guys that make the metal for like the transformers and the uh, you know, just it's like the most boring business in the world, and it's wonderful because like it's cost plus because once you know. The, the utility buyers aren't going to take career risk by buying from some new price cheap suppliers. Like if you're approved, you buy. And if copper goes up and copper doubles, they double the price and they add their margin and they send it through. And, and like what I'm hearing, they, they number one, generate, or excuse me, transformers are out two years. You can't get a transformer for two years. Mm-hmm. Right. So now, you know, now we're at 2026. Like, Number two, uh, Doomberg, you know, my friend Doomberg highlighted last year the current design of transformers within the United States infrastructure are designed to cycle. 
So during peak usage, they're designed to get hot and, and there's a there's an engineering component to how hot they can get, still pump, all this stuff. And then at night, when everyone goes to bed, they cool down and that allows them to sort of uh, extend their useful life mm-hmm. to up to 30 years. Doomberg highlighted, well, guess what? We're all going to plug in our EVs at night. That's the plan. That's the grand plan. When you do that, you shorten the useful life of these transformers from 30 years to three years because they never have a chance to cool down. I could not be happier being (laughs) a shareholder of this private equity company. They are like giddy Mm -hmm. because they see nothing but open field running. The politicians who are, you know, virtue signaling this stuff, they really should hire some engineers to tell them like, hey, you know, hello, McFly, work backwards. This is like, it's not going to work. I mean, mm-hmm. but it, it that's why I say like, there's always a bull market somewhere. Like there's always like electrical infrastructure in the United States to me is just like, hey, you're seeing it now, right? Alberta. Hey, it's cold in Canada in January. Please shut down all your electronics. Really? So you're you're surprised that it's cold in Alberta, Canada in January? Are you kidding me? But it's colder than it's ever been. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's been that cold before in Alberta. It was that cold like five years ago in Ohio. Stop. You had crappy planning. There's so much demand for electrical infrastructure. It's unbelievable. But it's it, it's like it also tells like. I'm not I'm not going to switch to electric. I remember when we had that cold game Packers against the Vikings in 2008. And they were telling you, they were telling the Packers fans, don't only bring your tickets on your phone to the game because your battery dies super fast in the cold. If I'm worried about keeping my tickets safe, you think I want to own a car that runs on the same friggin' lithium battery? Come on. Like like fine, for, but I would never have two of them. Maybe I'd have one for running around town. I wouldn't have two. There's no way. Not not and and again, the grid isn't even close to ready to hitting these targets. The amount of investment that has to take place in the grid is unbelievable opportunity. Um over the next five, 10, 15 years. I mean, they like I said, this <laughs> these electrical infrastructure, you know, manufacturers, they're like they are like children on Christmas. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, just from your example, their demand curve just just went up by 10x. That's incredible. Right. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. And it's and, you know, a lot of this stuff ain't made in America anymore. Mm-hmm. Of course. Of course. And guess where it is. And a lot of it, in no small part. It's you know, it's Japan, which is fine. But a lot of it's in China, too. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's in Germany. Well, what did we just do to the German manufacturing sector? Well, the United States State Department basically severely impaired U.S. or German industrial production because, you know what? Hey, the Russians are bad. Shut off all your gas here. Buy more. Deindustrialize Germany. What? Like, like there are so many factors working against at counter purposes in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. It just says that inflate <laughs> inflation in the components into the electrical grid, demand for components into the electrical grid. It is like open field running for years to come. Mm-hmm. Years. And again, I mean, you said it great earlier where you said, I don't hate the environment. You know, it's terrible that we have to have all these caveats all the time, but it's, 
again, it, we're, we're speaking about the reality of the situation. I think it would be great if we could all just plug in our car and that would get us from A to B as reliably as we have been for the last 50, 60 years. That would be a great thing. But to your point, we're not only looking at, let's say, all of the minerals that have to be mined to produce the batteries, to produce this technology for the EVs. We also need a hell of a lot of metal, copper, iron ore, all of this stuff to be able to produce just the infrastructure needed to charge all those EVs as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I've got 43 solar panels on my roof. I've had them there since 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what I paid for them. I have a solar meter right on my house. I can see how much electricity they've generated. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm not in a sweet spot for this stuff. But conveniently, I can take the total amount of electricity generated, and I can multiply that times uh, the um, times the per you know the per the, the, the per kilowatt hour rate, mm-hmm. and I can figure out how much they've generated, and I can then divide that by the purchase price that I paid, mm-hmm. and at zero percent, they made sense. Right at one percent, they made sense. At two percent, they sort of made sense. They made sense. Three percent, four percent. I'm underwater. I've been better off buying bonds. Five, I'm better off having my money in cash. And so, you know, I think a really underappreciated dynamic of the Fed raising rates with Powell five and a quarter. If rates were five and a quarter in 2010 when I put these things in, I never would have put them in. Mm-hmm. I'd have put the money in the bank and made five percent. Yeah. And just pay the difference in inflation and in energy costs out of the bank. So, you know, and these things have useful life. Maybe they're 50 years, maybe they're 30 years. They're, they're not really sure, but like I'm 15 years in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it highlights this point of you raise rates. These things are not, a lot of these technologies are not economic at 5% rates. Mm-hmm. And okay, how do I play that? Oh, what's really good for uranium and it's really good for oil. It's really, I mean, that's, you know, that's that's it. I think we're seeing, you know, this uranium squeeze we're seeing, you know, I wasn't aggressive enough about it. I've written positively about uranium in the past, not as frequently or as aggressively as I nearly should have in hindsight, of course, but it makes perfect sense that it's happening. You take rates to five, you know, prospective EV production or alternative energy production, excuse me, is going to be lower than you think. So Luke, let me ask you, have the panels actually paid for themselves yet? Oh, not even close. Um, They'll pay for themselves. Well, right. Like, uh, um, and you're what, you're almost 14 years in at this point, 14. Yeah. Well, 14 years. in. yeah. Yeah. They will. I think my total payback period you know, now the math isn't straight clear because I there were e photovoltaic there were, there were solar panel credits that I basically securitized and sold to the solar installer or solar company that you could arguably need to net against the purchase price. And if you do that, plus I'll come close to probably covering my purchase price if electricity prices don't rise a lot. That's like that's a bit of the wild card is. Gun to my head when I put them in, I would have thought that electric prices would have risen more than they have mm-hmm. in the intervening time. Part of that has been that 
you we have a ton of trapped shale here basically that you can't get to market so gas is really cheap for the electric companies here and uh, for uh, to generate with and so that's kept uh electric and gas costs like really low in my part of the country in america mm-hmm. um so that could change you know some of that payback period is a function of what electricity prices do but all else equal i'll come close to I'll come close to breaking even in probably 30 years, which is fine. If you're going to live in a house for 30 years, who lives in a house for 30 years? Nobody except me, apparently. Well, in this hypothetical situation, except you apparently. And then, you know, once you've finally broken even, hopefully you don't have to replace them at that point and, you know, start the cycle all over again. Yeah. People say, well, isn't it nice being off the grid? I'm like, I'm not off the grid. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like uh, there's a switch literally that like, as soon as the grid goes down, those things goes down mm-hmm. for safety reasons, because if I'm generating electricity and it's going into the grid and the grid's down and there's some linesman up there working on something, he doesn't want a bunch of solar panels pumping the lines full of electricity. So they're all rigged so that they shut down when the grid goes down. Mm-hmm. Well, can't you rig it so that you're off the grid? Yes. What does that entail? A giant array of lithium ion batteries. Where do you put those? Well, I'm in Ohio, so I can't put them outside because they barely work when it gets cold or when it gets too hot, both of which happens in Ohio every year. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then can't you put them in your house? Yes. Now I'm going to have to have a conversation. Hey, State Farm, it's Luke. Yeah, I know you're insure my house. I just put in a big array of lithium ion batteries. They're going to be like, wait, what? And they go, yeah, your insurance premiums? just went up because the risk of something going boom and burning down your whole house just went up quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, and lithium ion fires, as you've probably read in the media, aren't easy to put out not at all. Uh, when you see these Teslas burning and stuff, some are tragic, but like fire departments, like putting water on it, don't make it better. <laughs> so it's like, it, it, there's no free lunch. And that's the like, I think, you know, we've been operating in a lot of ways in an economy where there's been a lot of free lunches and sort of like one little by little, the free lunches are all winding down or they're starting to be a little more expensive, sort of all at once. And that might be the biggest takeaway. The, the, the whole discussion we just had with the solar panels and the EV, et cetera, it's all a metaphor or an analog for sort of the the ending of a lot of different free lunches. Mm-hmm. Well, Luke, I think that's a great point to kind of wrap up on. I really want to thank you for an excellent and, you know, really, really interesting conversation today, as usual. But is there anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with before we do wrap up here? I I think I think volatility is going to remain sort of higher than usual. Everyone's looking for volatility in stocks. Everyone's going, why is the VIX so low? But I think the volatility has transferred. It's look at what bond volatility has been. Look what treasury volatility has been. Look at what dollar volatility. Been. Look at look at currency volatility. Um, the, the volatility is now in currencies and bonds and in sovereign bonds. Um, and that to me suggests it's really important to remain unlevered for the average investor. Everything will be fine if you're unlevered and you're diversified. Um, It'll be a little, I think we're all in for a bumpy stretch, but I think that's really going to be key for the average investor is, is to be diversified and not just against sort of classic economic risks, but volatility in currencies, volatility in bonds, um, and, and understand that being unlevered and being diversified are the ways you get around that. Excellent, Luke. And of course, 
more of your excellent reports are all available at fftt-llc.com. And of course, you're an excellent Twitter follow at Luke Roman, G-R-O-M-E-N, right? That's right. Yep. Excellent. Luke, thanks so much for your time again today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on again, Tom. I enjoyed our conversation. Absolutely. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.